I think one of the mistakes can be that people sort of, the diary just fills up naturally or if someone's lucky enough to have a PA or a secretary, they fill it up with all sorts of what they think is what you should be doing. And actually, the first thing should be big chunks of time for you to go around and eat with your people. I mean, I, I like to do physical exercise with the teams because it's a great way of sharing a space with them that brings you down to the level and at the end just gathering them in and just giving them two or three minutes of what's on my mind. Hi there, this is Ben Morton and you're listening to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders, managing directors, chief executive officers and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's totally free. This week, we are getting back to basics and we are exploring some of the fundamentals of great leadership with Brigadier Nick Cowley, OBE. Over the past 20 years, Nick has been in leadership positions during multiple operational tours of Iraq and Afghanistan. Nick is currently commanding 16 Air Assault Brigade, which is the British Army's high readiness force. And during his career, Nick has been awarded a Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service, an MBE and an OBE. In addition to his military career, Nick has always had a keen interest in education and social mobility. In 2019, that led Nick to found a social mobility charity called The Talent Tap, which gives training and opportunities to talented students from low social mobility areas. Personally, I first met Nick back in 1997 when we were on the pre-university course at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst together. And then we found ourselves in the same training platoon three years later on the commissioning course again back at Sandhurst. I am delighted to bring you this interview with Nick because even way back then when we were in our early 20s, It was evident to me, and I think probably most of those around me at Sandhurst, that he was one of life's natural leaders, that he is one of life's natural leaders. And that being the case, I know for certain that he's going to provide us all with massive value through today's episode. Before we get into this episode, though, let me just share some information about how we are mixing up the usual book competition and we are supersizing it for you. So instead of giving you the chance to win a book every time we have an author on the show, we're going to be doing one prize draw towards the end of each season to win all of the books mentioned in that season. That means this season, in the competition I've got running now for you, you can win a copy of Empathy Works, Legacy in the Making, See It, Say It, Appreciate It, How Not to F Up Your Startup, and I'll also chuck in a copy of my book, Mission Leadership Lifting the Mask. All you have to do to enter is click on the link in the show notes before the 23rd of March, and add your details so that we can get in touch with you if you are one of the lucky winners. So what are you waiting for, folks? Do that now, pause the recording, enter the competition, and then head back here to listen to the amazing pearls of wisdom that you're about to hear from Brigadier Nick Cowley, OBE. 
Nick, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us today for this episode. First of all, how are you? Really well and very humbled to be here, I think is amazing. Since we saw each other a few months ago, I've been following your podcast and the really fantastic and amazing people you've had on them. So uh, I'm really pleased to be here and slightly nervous because I'm not quite sure I've earned my place on your podcast, so I'm excited. I think you're um, doing yourself a disservice there, Nick. You have well and truly what you've done in your career and earned a place on, on the podcast. And on that note, let's go straight into the question that I often say is a simple one to ask, but probably quite a difficult question to answer, which is what does leadership mean to you, Nick? So to me, leadership is all about the people. Because, yes, there'll be goals and there'll be visions, but fundamentally it has to be about the people. And I think when you're in the military or even actually in other things to do with leadership, things change all the time. The timeline can change. The urgency can change. The level of danger can change in the military. And that means you have to lead in a slightly different manner at that time. But fundamentally, it's still about the people. And I think it has to be because the army isn't anything. It's it's a collective of people. Now, it's the same with a business. It's the same with a charity I founded. I was chair of a school of governors. It's It's just a group of people. So I really think it has to be about the people. And if we put people at the heart of it, then we will achieve the long-term visions and goals. You can have great visions and great goals, but if you're not someone who puts people really at the heart of them and genuinely mean that, I honestly don't think you can achieve them in the long run. You can achieve them in the short run, I'm sure. And I'm sure there are some people who are sort of great geniuses who don't put people at the heart who get things done. But for me, for long-term success, that's so important. Not only for the success of the business, I think it's just the right thing to do as a human being. And when you go to bed at night and 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 when you look in the mirror in the morning having a wash, I think it's important to know that you're doing the right thing for the people around you. I think what struck me is the longer I've been in work is what an impact work has on someone's life and then, then has on their family and on their sleep and on their well-being. So if you're not really putting them at the heart of it, then that has a terrible knock-on effect for them. And I, I genuinely don't think that doesn't mean you can't demand very high standards. It doesn't mean at times your people can't work incredibly hard. But I think people are okay doing that as long as they know that they are at the core of what you believe and that you realize that their all-round health and well-being is essential to your business, to your organization, to the army, or to one's own sense of well-being. Yeah, Nick, something you said there is re- really interesting, which I've not heard many people mentioned before but towards the end you said um understanding to paraphrase understanding the impact that you have on sort of other other people's lives now i've i've spoken about that for for a long time on all of my podcasts probably on all my social media every leadership program i run i often talk about it being leadership being a great privilege and a great responsibility because ultimately we don't just have an impact on people between nine and five, Monday to Friday or whatever the working hours are, right? We have an impact on how people are when, when they go home to their to their loved ones. And I've I've never quite known where that belief that I hold comes from. But it's interesting that I've just heard you say something very similar. And we know each other from Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, right? Like does does that stem from from Sandhurst for you, that that belief that you just shared? So I think I think there must be a part of that. And I think servant leadership, which I didn't really understand when I went through Sandhurst, even though its motto is serve to lead, I didn't really know what it meant. So I think when I became a commanding officer, 
I really began to understand what it meant because I realized what people needed from me in terms of reassurance, in terms of understanding, care, someone to listen to them as they were going through their challenges. So I think the army must have had a part of that. Now, this is a very biased comment towards the army, but this is when I'm talking to young soldiers and young officers, what I talk about is, in my mind, the army being the most important job in the world, because A, we're there to defend our nation, our national interests, and I think that's hugely important. Secondly, we have this incredible responsibility to have people's lives in our hands, and also the responsibility to be to take life if we have to. And, and it's hard to think so more important than that. But thirdly, and but I but I actually think this is in all businesses. Thirdly, I talked to them about the fact that when someone leaves the camp at the end of the day, they're still in the army. And if they're not being well led, if they're not being nurtured, if they don't enjoy what they're doing, then that is going to have a huge impact on their family lives and their lives um, when they're not actually formally at work. And so I, I think that's particularly prone in the army because a soldier is a soldier 24-7. And when they go out at the weekend, they still need to abide by the values and standards of the British Army. But actually, I think it's the same everywhere people work. And and I suppose Sunday night blues is seen as, as okay and normal, but it's it's probably not and it probably shouldn't be because in every business it has an impact on wider life. I had a very strong experience when I was a commanding officer in Germany and I decided to do a senior leadership away day and the padre, so each regiment assigned a, a, a religious um, person to provide welfare and guidance. Uh, in this case, he he asked if he could do the first five minutes of the session. So I said, yeah, fine. You know, it's quite hard to say no to a padre and they ask you for that. <laughs> and what he did was he said, bring something that means something to you and then just turn up and, and I'll do the rest. So he then, when we got there, put us in a circle and said, no one's allowed to speak for five minutes, which for a senior leadership team is incredibly difficult. And we all just looked at each other. And then he said, tell me about the object you you brought with you. And I had a, a, a postcard of my charity, similar, I spoke about my charity, passed on to the next person they had a dog lead and they spoke about it's very important to them to decompress at the end of the day and walking the dog home is a way of doing that. And I thought, that's a bit odd. Don't we all, don't we all love being at work? And the next person had a fishing rod and they said, and it's really important for them at the weekend to fish because they find work very stressful and it can get them down. And actually he had had a challenge in a previous job. And we went around the circle and I suddenly had this realization that A, not everyone loves being at work. B, things that I thought were great fun were actually stressful for people. And then actually the army wasn't the biggest thing in their lives. And as someone who's loved their job, I love the, the environment of it. I love the challenge. I, I enjoy getting back to work after I've been away. It had a, just a hugely powerful impression on me and made me realize that I needed to recognize that they didn't all on Monday morning think, yes, you know, we're going back into work. And I actually needed to lead them in a way that appreciated that. And the guy with the fishing rod, he was my go-to person for difficult problems. I used to load them onto him because he always got them done. And what I didn't realize was that actually I was pushing him right up to the to the brink of 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 his tolerances and I hadn't even realized that because I was just enjoying charging forward as, as, as hard as I could. So I think there's definitely a bit of army in that, but um but I think it's just across everything we do, our work takes up a huge amount of our, our, our time and energy. And if it's not going well and you're not being well led and your leaders don't put people at the heart of it, probably you're not going to be enjoying life and it's not going to be good for your health. 
Yeah, that's such a powerful lesson that you shared there, Nick, especially around your your go-to guy, right? Was it a guy? guy? You said it was a guy, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah especially around that go-to guy. I think mean, it so often happens, doesn't it? When there's a important job to be done, a difficult job to be done, like who, who are we going to give it to? We're going to give it to uh, one of our top performers. But the challenge often with those people is that they take it and take it and eventually they start to feel stressed and overloaded. But what they never want to do is say, Hey, sorry, Ben. Sorry, Nick. I've got too much on my plate. Like I'm, I'm struggling because then if they do that, suddenly they're maybe they're they're not a star performer, and it yeah they don't want to ask for help. It happens so often, doesn't it? It's but it's such a powerful lesson to to learn. Yeah, and, and I think the way we see it manifest itself in in my line of work, but it's probably similar in others, particularly firms that are or industries that are famous for doing very long hours. I think it manifests itself in sleep, and so. You know, my absolute very best people in the engine room, particularly when we are on operations or training, would begin to sacrifice their sleep really aggressively. And because they had great energy and because they were high performers, they sort of thought that was okay. And one of the dangers is when you're tired is you don't even realize you're tired. Mm-hmm. It's not like if you have an alcoholic drink, you realize your performance is impaired. Actually, if you have a couple of a very interrupted or very short night's sleep, you're in a similar position. And we've had to, in the teams I've run more recently, been really strict about forcing people to go and rest because we want them to make better decisions and to perform you know in an optimal level as as often as possible when i was growing up i i worked in some organizations with an amazing guy called general stan mccrystal and he was out of the kind of four hours sleep a night school or certainly used to be and i you know i love that and as a young officer in the army and particularly during operational tours that was definitely the model i wanted to copy now as a as a older leader and i've realized that 99.9 percent of people can't do that and it's actually not good for them and general stan probably can because he's a bit of a hero of mine but most people can't and we need to really make sure we don't overload those top performers particularly to the point they start missing sleep and then that has all sorts of knock-on effects on health and good decision making and uh, that type of thing yeah well actually i think the science says that um 97 percent of people can't do what general mccrystal did i think it's around about 97 percent of people uh, or sorry three percent of people have got a gene which means that they can function effectively on a, on a lot less sleep but sadly like the vast vast majority of us don't don't have that yeah interesting no and, and, and the other thing that i've learned sort of through you know and i know that this is you know well known in books etc now but i didn't used to really believe it certainly didn't used to live by was i thought you know if i've been on a flight the best thing i do is pop to the gym and kind of that made me feel fresher and now i'm much more focused on sleep and eating right before going and doing exercise and i think viewing it as the triangle with sleep being the essential one at the bottom has helped me i think make better decisions about my own well-being and energy and if you put people at the heart of your leadership it takes a huge amount of energy because i think you're constantly transferring your energy into them and you can only do that then if you've got very high energy levels and i think the bedrock of that has to be good sleep yeah totally totally agree especially as you start to get a little bit older right <laughs> <laughs> apparently <laughs> Nick, we was just before we hit record, we was chatting a little and reminiscing a little on about uh, Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. What, in terms of leadership and leadership lessons, what are some of the main things you recall taking away from from the, your eleven months there? So, I, I think I look back and I was a what I call a late developer. So, I when I meet young officers today, and I, I meet a lot in my job, I spend a lot of time walking out to them. 
I'm really impressed by their maturity, their understanding, the amount they've thought about their profession. I loved being in the army. It felt something very natural and probably I didn't do enough thinking about it. Now, in some respects, maybe that's not a bad thing. You just sort of get on and do and don't wind yourself up and make it too complex. But I don't think I really thought hard about leadership. And the bit I took away wrongly was this sort of leadership's just you. And I thought, well, that's great. Well, that's easy. Hmm. Rather than actually realizing that there's so much more under that sentence. So actually, I've thought more about it as I've got older. And I think the, the core thing of this servant leadership is the one that's I think about the most. And so some people think, particularly when they think of a hierarchy, that the leader's sitting at the top of the hierarchy telling people what to do. What I find is I spend, you know, really all my time trying to set conditions for people junior to me to be as good as they can be. So I try and serve them by giving them freedoms, by giving them resources. Most of the time, actually, it's giving them confidence that, yeah, that's great. Like, go and do it. And mm. if it goes wrong, don't worry, we'll go and do something else. And I think servant leadership has emerged for me as I've got into more senior leadership positions, because giving people those freedoms and resources and the confidence to go for it has been really powerful. And it's made me realize what they need from me. And actually, there's so many freedoms out there. But you have to give people confidence to grab those freedoms and use them. And if they think that you're going to affect their career if they get it wrong then then all those freedoms begin to dribble away i think the other thing is one's got older is the quality of the people working with me have been so high that has encouraged me to do that because frankly they'll 99 percent of the time come up with a better solution and a better outcome as long as i can give them the confidence and the freedoms to really go and do it and uh you know i think turn this ship around you know is a well read book that many of your listeners would have leafed through but i do think there's some real truth in that in terms of trying to get to that mentality of people just saying i intend to do this i.e they're not asking you to do it because they know they know better than you what needs doing they just want the confidence and freedom to move forward and get it done so i think sanders has a powerful impact i think for me i was probably too young to fully ingest it but it was powerful enough that i've sort of reached back into it i think through the years and found some useful um, tools that have came out of it, particularly with servant leadership. Yeah, fascinating. And what would you say has been your biggest challenge from a leadership perspective, Nick? Like biggest challenge you've faced and what, what did you learn from it? First of all, I've been incredibly lucky to work with some great people and some great teams. So I, I cannot honestly say I've had to go into an organization that was failing. Whenever I've taken over organizations and in the army, we do that quite a lot. I've genuinely been really excited about what lies ahead and the challenges are about getting better as opposed to saving a failing organization. I think a couple of things sprang to mind. So one of them is I've probably made more mistakes and had more challenges to do with followership than leadership. Because when one takes over a a platoon, which is a group of 30 people or a squadron, a group of about 100, or now, um, you know, I'm commanding a a team of 6,000, you think a lot about how you're going to lead them and what leadership culture you want to set, et cetera. But what I've probably traditionally not done is thought enough about followership and how do I get the best out of my relationship with my boss to give me the maximum freedom and resources. And I think what I thought in the past is if I lead my team really well, then that's the main thing. And actually the army encourages you to do what they call looking down, which is effectively concentrating your energy and your time 
on the people junior to you to make them better and don't worry about looking up. And looking up is often seen as slightly am overly ambitious sort of career stuff. And actually what I've come to realize is it's not about looking up in terms of one's own ambition or trying to be best mates with one's boss, but as in you need to do more of that to really build the trust that allows you the freedom to run your team in the way they need to be run. And I think what I've probably done in the past is made some mistakes by not investing enough time in that relationship so that then when a challenge has come along, I maybe haven't got the connective tissue to give me the freedom to then get on and solve that issue myself. So I think there's an interesting conversation probably across all organizations about the value of followerships. There's lots of books on leadership, lots of literature out there. But actually, the more I think about it, followership becomes a really important part of leadership. And I imagine if you're the CEO of a company, the followership of your chair or your board or your shareholders becomes important. And that doesn't mean following them as in sort of doing what you're told, but as in recognizing there has to be a strong relationship there and that you've got a responsibility to form that relationship and make sure it's in really good shape. So I think that's probably where I've had the biggest challenges because I haven't focused on it enough myself and that's one that particularly as one gets in more senior positions i think becomes even more important because there are just simply more dynamics at play the more senior you get hey quick one for you i want to make sure that you know about my 10 for 10 leadership program it's an online program that's totally free it's bite-sized and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that i frequently get asked about it's also a course that gets consistently great feedback. You can find out more by heading to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com. That's really interesting. It um, reminds me of some great research that came out of Harvard a long time ago. I think it was from a guy called Katzenbach, I think. And they spoke about almost any one of us, if not all of us, will always be a member of two teams right there'll be the team that we're responsible for for leading and then there's the the team that we're a member of with our with our peers that's ultimately led by by our boss and he speaks about like of those two teams which is the the most important and I often ask leadership teams this question say right I'm going to ask you an almost impossible question to answer we can get you to stand up and vote with your feet which team is most important in terms of where you put your focus and, and effort? Is it the one you lead or the one you, you're a member of? And generally, most people will vote with their feet and go with the one that, that, they, that they lead. Whereas the, the research from Katzenbach argued that actually it's the one that you're a, you're a member of, because if those that you lead look up and see you've got strong, healthy relationships with your peers and you're working well, sort of cross-functionally and and with your boss then they just know instinctively that that's going to make their life better better and easier um and to your point like if you if you're doing that it gives them especially if you're doing that with your boss it gives them the freedoms doesn't it to operate and they're more likely to to get the resources and support that that they need but it's it's an interesting one because we all want to think that i'm here to serve serve my team and i've got to stick up for and look look out for them but it's it's really interesting. That is, I'd love you if you, you can dig it out, or I'll do a bit of googling. I'd love to find that because I think that is so true. And actually, I went back to Sanders the other day, and was the subject was followership because I think this is so interesting. And I think if I look at the mistakes in my current job, which 
has sort of put me into a more senior leadership position and, and sitting on a senior board. I ha- you know, I've invested, you know, every waking hour in the organization I'm running and that's where I feel I should be. But actually, I should have done more sideways and upwards, I think. And, and that would have inadvertently benefited the organization I'm running more. And there's a, you know, there, there's a very small uh, book called Bread and Butter. I think it is about a guy who started a sandwich business. But anyway, one of the things, you know, you take a little thing from each book you read. Yeah. Was, as a leader, only do what only you can do, which is an odd thing because... I've always thought, it'd be, you know, it's really good in the army or as a leader to be seen, to be getting your, rolling your sleeves on, getting in. But actually, there's definitely some truth to it. And in the link to the comment you're just making, no one on your team can build those relationships with your boss and your fellow board members. So that's one of those things that only you can do. So when one layers what you're talking about, that article, and only do what only you can do as a leader, actually, that makes it even more important that you're out building those lateral and upwards relationships because loads of other people in the team can do the planning and execution. None of them can go and go and see one of those people and have a conversation in the way that you can. So, yeah, that's a good one. But I'm, I'll be interested in that article, and I definitely need to do some more thinking about that. Yeah, well, I'll find it and send it to you, Nick, and I'll also include it in the in the show notes for everybody that's listening too. Yeah. Talking about that, doing what only you, you can do. I seem to remember a few months back when we reconnected at, at Sandhurst, you was talking about that then. And did you say kind of one of the things that only you can do as the senior leader is go around and build those relationships and inspire confidence in the people? So I think so. I mean, everyone has a role in this in leadership positions. But when I found when I ran a regiment, so sort of 500 of folks, you've got other people in the organization who are great people, but their ability to go around and particularly with the youngest members of the team, the young men and women, and to fill them with confidence, I think that has to be you as the leader. So I used to spend most of my time out and about talking to young people and often, you know, repeating many of the same messages. And but I think you have to do that relentlessly and you have to be filling them with confidence. And I think one of the mistakes can be that people sort of, the diary just fills up naturally or if someone's lucky enough to have a PA or a secretary, they fill it up with all sorts of what they think is what you should be doing. And actually... The first thing should be big chunks of time for you to go around and eat with your people. I mean, I, I like to do physical exercise with the teams because it's a great way of sharing a space with them that brings you down to the level. And at the end, just gathering them in and just giving them two or three minutes of what's on my mind. It's the same with parachuting with soldiers. Great chance to kind of share something and do that. So I think going out and doing that is something only you can do. And I, so you have a weapon in the army called a 50 cal, which is a massive machine gun. And I see it as 50 calling people in the chest with positive energy everywhere you go. <laughs> nice. And you've got to keep loading up and keep loading up and keep finding out to them so that they really believe and they, and they take that from you. And other people can do lots of that good stuff. Everyone needs to do good management to make sure, you know, it doesn't matter if the roof's leaking, it doesn't matter how positive your leader makes you feel or if there's no hot water in your showers. So we've got to get the management right. But on top of that, I think really something the only only the leader can do is be out there firing that positive energy into people and when i hear people say well my door's always open my view is no one's walking in your door only the people you don't really need to see or want to see are walking in your door and there's all sorts of barriers outside your door that might be a pa it might be your deputy it you know that that just mean that a junior person is not going to walk in so i think you have to be out there and when you're out there, if you can find things that you're do, doing together, so that might be eating together, it might be having a coffee together, hopefully 
and in the army have the extra advantage of being able to do fitness together or jump out of a plane together. Or last week I was in Norway and the soldiers were jumping in an, an icy hole in the lake and doing that together is just allows you to build that connection that then allows you to get those sh very short, very clear messages over with the underlying message hopefully being, wow, you know, the boss really wants to spend time with us, really cares about us and is really energetic about our organization. And if they remember nothing else, I think that's really powerful. And I don't think anyone can quite do that like the boss. So that nicely brings us full circle, Nick. So if you are, and I love that phrase, um, if you're out there regularly 50 Callan people in the chest with, with, with positive energy, <laughs> what do you do yourself to, to maintain your energy? Because if you're constantly giving it out, you need to have a way to, to replenish it, right? So what does, that, what does that look like for you? How do you keep yourself fit, healthy, energized and, and upbeat? So I think one we touched on earlier, which is this triangle of sleep being at the base of it, then healthy eating and I'm a big fan of Tim Spector's work and sort of lots of vegetables and plant-based stuff and my wife's vegetarian and, and sort of drives some of that behavior which is really good and then exercise and because of my job I have to do exercise five times a week as a minimum to try and keep up with the young men and women um, so doing that exercise and and I think my routines changed a bit as I got older less CV and a bit more weights and functional movement and stretching etc so I think that that's an absolute given the bit that I think about more these days is what I call transitions, and that's not an idea of mine. I can't remember where I heard it. And so recognizing that during the day, one's got a number of transitions. So that might be seeing your family in the morning. It may then be seeing your, your core team when you arrive at work. And between each transition, just taking a moment to think, what do these people need from me? during this moment mm -hmm. of the day. So love that. what does my wife need for me to make sure she goes off to work in, in good spirits and what do I need? And when I arrive in the office, no one in the office gives two hoots about what's going on with the kids or homework or lost car keys or whatever. So when I walk in there to know that's a transition and that one needs to walk in as though you're having the greatest day of your life because otherwise it has an effect on all of them. And then I think the most important one is, you know, Friday, six o'clock in the evening, Maybe let's say in the military context, you've got a soldier who's leaving the military who maybe hasn't been a great soldier, but it's their last meeting with you before they then go and um, become a civilian. And it's making sure before you open the door, you realize that's a transition. And for that individual, they need to leave there feeling fantastic and as though there's nowhere else you want to be than with that in that room with them, talking to them about their future career. And so just that transition and recognizing what they need, I think is really important. And it doesn't take very long to do a transition it's just a mental note so you open it up you're full of energy they think that you're the only person in the whole world that matters and that they don't mind it you know you're desperate to go and see your daughter play sport or that your wife's you know you're in trouble because you haven't been to the shops or whatever that's of no interest to them and it's really important they got no idea that could even be vaguely in your mind so whether they walk out they feel a million dollars like they've really had your attention and then when that happens then you may be packing up and you're transitioning so when you walk in at home rather than sort of sighing and dumping your bag in the hallway you realize that there's another group of people who need your energy so i think making sure you've got the energy which is the sleep feeding exercise bit and then the transition bit is making sure you know what people need from you when and then the final bit of advice i got given before i came into this job by my cousin who i use as someone to kind of bounce ideas off is knowing when you're running, jogging or sprinting 
and he said most uh, CEOs, nice. he, he said run too fast most of the time. And you know what it's like when being for a jog. In fact, if we jog together now, you'd probably do it to me where you'd be just one yard quicker than I'd be. And that's really painful running just a bit quicker than you want to. And then there's no sprint left in you at the end of the race. And his advice to me was make sure you know to jog so that when you need to sprint, which in my terms might be a short notice operational tour, could be an exercise, could be a crisis, I suppose, where you then know you're sprinting. And that means that it's okay that you're missing a load of weekends or family time or evenings because you know you're in a sprint and you know you can revert to jog. Whereas, and I think the more, once since he's pointed out, the more I see it, there's a load of leaders who are constantly at sprint, uh, sorry, at running too fast rather than sprinting. And it means they can never sprint and they're never jogging enough to store up energy. So at the moment, you know, there may be someone who's not in a job that's facing a major conflict and they'll say, oh, I'm super busy. I'm super busy. I'm working hard. I'm thinking, you need to be jogging because the conflict or the crisis might come and there's you, you're already burning the family, you're burning your own energy levels, et cetera. So I think the transition bit, knowing when you're jogging and then just looking after yourself is probably what allows you to keep firing out the energy at the speed that I think you need to. Love that. Yeah, really, really love that. Nick, one final question, and there may be a, a few of my regular quick fire ones to, to finish. Um, and again, we, we spoke about this a little bit before we hit record. But I love it. So let me take you back to a Thursday evening. I think it was early December, probably 2000. We were both young officer cadets at Sandhurst. The end of what you described as maybe one of the hardest exercises in your career in in South South Wales. Um, It's in the evening. You were the designated platoon commander and you've given a set of orders for a dawn attack on an enemy position to round out our, our exercise. Like, let me take you back there. What do, what do you remember of that of that moment? So it's funny. So I remember the exercise being really hard. And I think it's a real reminder that doing the basics well can be difficult, difficult enough. And it was freezing cold, really. It just rained all week in the woods of Sennybridge in southern Wales in December. So it was pretty brutal. And all I can remember is it being so dark during the night and it was the last night of the exercise and then we had this big dawn attack there was the big signature attack at the end of the first term and lots of senior people to come in and watch it and I had the job of leading the platoon and I was then having given the set of orders was due to lead them to the start line to start the attack and I realized I had no idea how I was going to get there because it was just pitch black in these woods and it was before the days of everyone having night vision goggles as, as they do now. And I remember the platoon colour sergeant, who was our instructor for the term, who was a very tough man and had been very hard on us, come up and he said, right, put your hand on my shoulder, hold on to my jacket, tell the whole platoon to do that to the person in front of you. So we effectively formed a human chain of 30 people. And he led us through the wood, down a track, through this sort of ditch and into what what was the line of departure? So it was the area where you'd lie until the sun came up and you did your attack. And I remember clearly feeling incredibly grateful to him. But actually, it's a powerful lesson in very simple leadership. And it really showed he cared and he wanted us to do well. So when he was being tough on us, it was actually a form of of kind of tough love. You know, he, he, you know, he wanted to make us the best leaders we could be. And he also showed that he didn't want us to fail. You know, when it came to, he didn't want us to fail. And I thought... That was really good of him. Um, and 
I felt incredibly grateful to him for it. And I mentioned it, I saw him, I hadn't seen him for 20 odd years. And then when I saw you last, I saw him and thanked him for doing that. So that's what I remembered when, when, uh, when you mentioned it, but um, you, you might have a slightly different memory. Yeah, I, I, I do the, so I didn't know that part about Colour Sergeant Rowe kind of saying, hold on to, hold on to your jacket and leading us all in. I didn't know that part of the story. Um, my recollection is around the set of orders or the, the briefing, I guess, in civilian language that you gave the the evening before we, we, we set off. And it sticks in my mind as, and again, without um, wishing to blow smoke up the proverbial as the, as the saying goes, I just remember it being one of the, best set of orders I'd heard in my short military career but mainly because you just seemed it seemed effortless how you struck the balance perfectly between giving a set of orders when you know you're being graded and assessed and you're having to lead your lead your peers but at the same time genuinely sort of getting us fired up to crawl through a freezing cold stream in, in, in December, which none of us wanted to wanted to do. And it's a really fine line to to do that and fire up a bunch of peers without coming across as a as a little bit of a of a you know what. So that was that was what <laughs> what what I remembered and why I wanted to ask you about it. Just wondered how much thought went into the the set of orders on on your behalf, like what you remembered about the briefing. So so I genuinely don't remember remember that at all. But I, I do think it highlights a point and there's an interesting tension in leading between being authentic and a bit of acting and and I think there has to be both and so you could argue that the transition bit helps you act because you're acting your best self at that particular moment um, and I think there is a bit of acting because when things are going wrong then people want something from their leaders and if you if they're looking at you and you're thinking oh no it's going wrong or you're visually that that appears to be the case, then they will feed off that. Whereas if it's going wrong and you on the outside look calm and relaxed and confident, then they will feed off that. Uh, the, the example that springs to mind, um, you know, was when when I lost someone in combat and, you know, was obviously absolutely devastated, but didn't think that's what the team needed from me. And I think they needed a much more confident and positive response to that setback. And I think some of them maybe thought, I was a little bit heartless at the time. Um, but I think overall, that's what the squadron needed at the time in terms of, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, if I'd really worn my heart on my sleeve, I think they would have, you know, not have gained a load of confidence moving forward again. So th there's a bit, you know, I think when things go wrong and you're in a leadership position, I think you you need to be a little bit of acting to be your best self, to be your most calm and composed and confident at the time when maybe inside you're feeling less than confident and less than composed. So there's your authentic self and then there's putting on your best self. And I suppose it's trying to make sure that you're within an envelope that you're very comfortable with, that it's still you, but you're trying to be your best you in that situation. And that you're also really thinking, what do the team need from me? And it's hard to think of many occasions when what they need from you is looking like you're panicked or afraid or nervous or um, less than confident. There's a really good letter by a guy called General Marshall, who became probably the most influential general in the Second World War. And he, he then built the Marshall Plan that rebuilt Germany. And after the First World War, when he was a young officer in the trenches, he was asked by someone to write down 
what he felt were the key traits of a leader in combat. And he writes this very short letter. But effectively, he says, you know, when everyone else is tired, hungry and scared, you need to be even more positive, even more um, brave and even more uh, serving your people and making sure you're out there for them. And I think I'll send you a copy of the letter. I think it's really powerful on that piece about it's still authentic, but you are really pushing yourself right to the end to be as positive as possible, even though if your people are tired and hungry and scared, no doubt you've got an element of that. And I think that letter by Marshall really summarizes that sort of positive follow, uh, leadership and followership that you need in those sort of situations. Oh, brilliant. Love that. Nick, two quick fire questions to, to round out this episode. What would you say is the one book that has had the biggest impact upon you? Or maybe to ask the question in a slightly different way, what's one book that you frequently find yourself recommending to other people? So it's an incredibly annoying question. So I've got so many books I would love to tell you about. So you can edit out the ones that you don't want to. But if I had to give you a couple, I'll give myself the freedom. So as a young boy, I read Bravo 2.0. It's adventure stuff. And that and that's how I thought I wanted to lead my adult life. And, you know, I just it, it was great stuff. And And so that had an impact on me as a teenager. In terms of more mature, in terms of leadership stuff, I mean, Turn This Ship Around, I've already mentioned, just a great book on, I think, the right sort of leadership do a delegation. The book I used to give my young officers and senior soldiers when I ran a battalion was Legacy by James Carr, which is the book about the All Blacks. It's just so simple, so good. It sums up servant leadership in a very modern way. I think sweeping the floor in terms of doing the basics well, making things better than when you leave them, thinking about the team. You know, there's a phrase in there called no dickheads, which you may need to edit out. But I just think is, it's so simple, but there's some truth to that. However good you are at rugby, however good you are at soldiering, however good you are, whatever. If you're not a good person, I don't want you on my team. Yeah. It's not long term. It's not going to help. So I think that's, I would say to a young leader, I think that's just a great book. Turn this ship around probably for more of a senior leader. In terms of our nation, there's a guy called Hashi Mohammed who's a barrister who helps out with uh, my charity. And he's written a, written a book called People Like Us that talks about his family's route from Somalia to Kenya to arriving in the UK, not being able to speak English, to now being a barrister. And when I was reading it, I kept on taking photographs of pages and WhatsApping them to people on my team in the charity saying, yes, this is it. Like, this is the challenge people have got. So I think in terms of understanding what I think is one of the great things we need to get after in British society, which is social mobility, I think people like us by Hashi Mohammed is really good on that. So that's a really long question to a, a long answer to a short question no it's perfect nick and final question and i always have to caveat this with other than your mobile phone what would you say is one item that if it were to be lost broken or stolen you'd immediately find yourself going out to replace so the when i first saw this i thought of three sketches of my children that my wife had given me um that sit in our bedroom so i wake up in the morning when I'm at home, which isn't all that often at the moment, but, and I see them. And when I go to bed at night, I see them and it captures them at, at an age of probably about eight, 10 and six. So they're kind of in that age when they're still really lovely and sweet. So that, that would be it. But actually I thought you were getting after more of a, a sort of item in your life than something that was nostalgic. And for that, it would be my uh, running headphones that, um, Maybe our company by Aftershock, I'm sure other makes apply, but it means they don't block out your ears so you can run on the road in them safely. And I think every day 
uh, when I go to the gym or go for a run. I, lo- I like listening to podcasts, including your podcast now. I'm onto it. And so when I get out of bed in the morning, the first thing I'm really looking for is my phone, which you mentioned, then those headphones. I can put those on, get to the gym or go for a run and listen to a podcast. And I think that's a pretty good way to start the day. Love it. Nick, thank you so much for your time today and coming on the show and sharing your your experience, your stories, your, your wisdom. It's been been a fascinating conversation. A nice trip down memory lane for, for, for you and I, perhaps in some ways. But um, regardless of that, absolutely packed full of gold dust that's going to help everybody out there listening on their leadership journey. So thank you very much. No, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Lovely to reconnect with you. And I'm just so chuffed to see how well you're doing and see your podcast and get your emails every day. Cheers me up. And uh, yeah, just delighted for you. There you have it, folks. I told you it would be a cracking episode and I'm sure you were not disappointed. I would love to know what you thought of the episode, folks. What really stood out for you? What was it that Nick shared that resonated with you most deeply? Or maybe what are you going to go and do differently as a result of listening to this week's main episode? Please do connect with me on LinkedIn to let me know what you think, or you can click on the feedback link in the show notes. I'm on LinkedIn as Ben Morton Leadership, so you should be able to find me pretty easily. And whilst you're looking at the show notes, do remember to enter that competition to win not one, but five different books. And then finally, before you go, can I ask you to do just one thing for me that will take no more than five minutes at the very most? Please, can you rate, review and subscribe to the show wherever you happen to be listening? The reviews really do make a huge difference and without them, we will not be able to keep the show going. So please do take two minutes now to leave that review. And while you're doing it, why not share the link to the show with your friends, colleagues, and on your social media channels. That is it for this episode though, folks. I hope it's been valuable. Look after those that you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. Look after yourselves. And until next time, lead on. Lead on.